0: This morning's sermon text is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
1: Well, Tom gave us an introduction to the book of Judges last week. Um, uh, He's actually away at a funeral, a family funeral in Maryland. He conducted the funeral yesterday, so he's spending some time with family. Uh, Blair and I are doing a short uh, short sermon series, two-part, from the book of 2 Corinthians. I'll be in chapter 3 today. Blair will be in chapter 5 next week. And this is really a deeper look at the mission statement of our church. Christ Covenant Church exists to love God's glory so that we can love God's people and go out in love and serve God's world. So this morning we are looking at the first part of our mission statement to love God's glory. Many of you know that Danielle and I served in Croatia for several years with Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a very challenging ministry, but we have a lot of wonderful memories as well One of those for me was taking a trip with some Croatian friends into the mountains to explore an abandoned nuclear bunker built during the Yugoslavian years in the Cold War. Uh, Deep in the mountains, underground, you know, there we are, we're with our our flashlights exploring a vast communist era military compound, best men's retreat of my life. It was incredible. (laughs) Nobody was there, not a soul for miles, just us. And you know what that has nothing to do with what I want to talk about this morning other than the journey to get there several hours hiking in the mountains to get to this place there was this incredible windstorm that day we're on the face of the mountain on this narrow trail the wind is just coming down the mountainside there is a, a sheer drop on my right side had to be really careful Wind was so loud you could barely hear one another. My friend Harvoye, he said, We must be careful to not die. <laughs> so it was great. It's great. <clears throat> Dark clouds in the sky, snow beginning to fall, this wind and the mountains. And as I take in all that's surrounding me, I find I'm holding back tears which is awkward when you're hiking with a bunch of guys. I'm, I'm going to have a little cry here, guys. Um, luckily, I was in the back of the line. There were tears of joy. I, I was beholding glory and beauty and grandeur and frightening majesty, and I was overwhelmed. I was so grateful to God because I was seeing something of him in his creation. Now, it was not he himself that I was seeing. I was not worshiping the earth. We call that paganism. I was seeing something that Romans 1 talks about. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The heavens declare the glory of God. And to think windstorms and mountains are only things he's made, but they are not he himself. What would it look like? What would it be like to see God himself, even his face? Well, this is something we get to ponder here this morning in our passage. The word glory is there 12 times. Verse 18 is the concluding summary statement of the passage Paul wants the Corinthians to behold the superior glory of Jesus Christ and so be transformed. So he has them stare at the gospel that he preaches, contrasting the old covenant with the new through the lens of one of the stories from the Old Testament. And he's also defending his ministry from slander. Uh, There was still a bit of conflict there in the Corinthian church as to whether Paul could be trusted. Is he truly a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he, he speaks too plainly and he's not very impressive to look at, uh, plus he suffers too much to be a real apostle, that was their thinking. And why is he really collecting money for the church in Judea? Well, Paul will reply in chapter 2 verse 17, we are not like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. At the other end of the passage, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, We have this ministry by the mercy of God. So he says, Unlike these other men who are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, me and Timothy and Titus and the rest of my fellow ministers, we have been commissioned by God, and we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul is bold. But lest we think he's boasting in himself, he says in verse 5, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So remember, Paul was running headlong against God on the road to Damascus when he met the resurrected Christ. God made him sufficient as a minister of the new covenant, just like God made Moses a minister of the old covenant when God met him at the burning bush. So Paul, he is in a long line of weak men whom God made sufficient to carry out his purposes. God gets the glory. And incredibly, Paul says that God made him and his companions ministers of a new covenant. So 600 years prior, God promised through the prophet Jeremiah that he would make a new covenant. He would put his law within his people and he would write it on their hearts. They would be transformed within to obey God from the heart. Paul is saying, my ministry, the message that I preach is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. It's very bold. He's saying, dear Corinthians, I don't think you realize what a turn has occurred in redemptive history. I don't think you grasp the significance of my message. You ought not doubt me. And so he holds up a contrast between the old covenant and the new, between the ministry of death and condemnation and the ministry of life and righteousness. Both came with glory, but the new outstripped the old the glory of Jesus Christ so two-part sermon Uh, first let's look at the old covenant we see it was marked by four things number one a veiled fading glory secondly spiritual blindness third condemnation and lastly death and then we'll look at the new covenant which was marked by life and transformation Righteousness and freedom, spiritual sight, and finally, a glory to behold. So first, the veiled, fading glory of the Old Covenant. So the Old Testament backdrop for this passage is Exodus 34, where Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai and receives for the second time the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. When he comes down from the mountain, the text says, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses doesn't realize it. Aaron and the people, they are afraid to come near him. Paul picks this up in verse 7, saying that the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. So what is this glory? It's an incredibly rich A biblical word, but here the glory is this radiating light that comes from the presence of God. Paul says the giving of the law came with this glory, so much so that the people couldn't look at Moses' face, at least not at that initial moment of fear. Because if you read the story in Exodus 34 carefully, Moses actually beckons the people to him and he tells them all that God said, all his commandments. His face is shining and they're right there. They're listening. It's only after giving the law that he puts a veil over his face. Now what would that signify? Paul interprets this in verse 13. He says, Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end a very challenging verse to interpret. Something is being brought to an end. Something is is fading away. In verse seven, it's the glory of Moses' face that is being brought to an end. Uh, In verse 11, it's the old covenant that is being brought to an end. So the two are clearly linked. Uh, So we can say in verse 13, it's, it's the old covenant and its glory that's fading away. But there's an outcome or a goal Of this passing glory. So so the fading glory holds promise of a greater glory. This Moses conceals. In verse 7, Israel was not able to gaze at the glory, but in verse 14, Moses prevents them from seeing it. It seems that the veil is actually an act of judgment. How is that? Well, if you look at verse 14, their minds were hardened it says. So remember in, in Exodus 34, most, Moses first gives the law, then he veils the glory on his face. So like many other Old Testament prophets, Moses is, is visually demonstrating something. It's like a visual aid if you want to, to teach something. Yeah, theologians, they, they call this a sign act. It's, um, so uh, Ezekiel Ezekiel, for example, he does this a lot. He does a lot of crazy things. I'll just mention two of the more neutral things that he does. Uh, one time he lays on the ground bound with rope. Or one time God tells him to shave his head and his beard and to scatter the hair around the city and to burn some of it and to tuck a little bit of it in, your, in his belt. The idea is what happens to the prophet is a picture of what's going to happen to the people. So, what is Moses communicating? By wearing a veil, he's painting a picture of Israel's story as it unfolds, a story of unbelief and rebellion against God. They will be condemned by the law, and they will be blind to glory. Did you notice in verse 13 that Moses is wearing the veil, but in verse 15, it's the people of Israel who have the veil lying over their hearts. So the prophet is enacting what will happen to the people. They are spiritually blind, and we dare not think that this is some strange reaction of the Jewish people alone. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even the very religious. In our sin, our hearts are veiled to the glory of Christ. We are bent inward on ourselves, consumed with self-worship and our own glory and our, and our own self-righteousness. So you can be very religious, a dutiful churchgoer with a squeaky clean life, seemingly pursuing all the right things and yet be spiritually blind. Paul writes in verse 14, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Says it again in verse 15, yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So devout, Religious exercises do not grant spiritual sight. So friends, apart from the grace of God, we are locked away in darkness. Each of us has rebelled against God. Our minds are hardened against him and we are blinded by the devil. The very next paragraph after our passage, Paul writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers oppose the glory of Christ. I was reading an article by a pastor named Eric Raymond, who has studied the lives of those who have walked away from the faith. And he says. After doing numerous spiritual autopsies following defection, I've observed a common thread. The road to apostasy is paved with indifference to the glory of Christ. We have to monitor our affections for Christ, to keep them warm. Don't let them grow cold. And we'll need each other in this. Some believers, they can't see him. They don't love him. They can't, they don't see him as beautiful. I remember trying my very best to explain the gospel to a friend in college and he said, that doesn't bring a tear to my eye. Not having it, just get away from me. Or maybe you have a family member where you've you've never quite been sure where they are spiritually and so you ask them if if you're so bold, do you know that you're right with God? Do, Do you have that assurance what does Jesus mean to you? And they say something like, look, I grew up in church. I, I, I know the Ten Commandments. I, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I've done pretty good in life. They say something like that. And they're angry that you've even brought it up. Well, that kind of thinking, it's intuitive to us, isn't it? We can understand it. It's the basis of all man-made religion where you present your righteousness to God in hopes that somehow it's going to work out. You quiet your conscience. But that will either lead you to abject despair or to foolish pride. If you think you have a good standing with God because of what you've done, you don't rightly understand the law. You're dealing in an old, veiled glory that's fading away. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Indeed, uh, Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of death. In fact, in verse six, he says the letter kills. So how could he refer to God's good law in this way? Well, the law itself deals out death to those who can't keep it. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. The law doesn't grade on a curve. James, James tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And the law offers you no assistance to keep it. It only serves to bring out in sharp clarity the fact that you are a sinner deserving Death. Paul writes in Romans 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the law declares the holiness of God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Clearly the old covenant came with glory. Such glory that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face if that's the case for something that brings condemnation and death, how much more glory will be the covenant that brings righteousness and life? Well, it will be a far surpassing glory. Uh, He says in verse 10, indeed in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It's like Keeping a lamp on in your bedroom at night, it, it, it serves its purpose, it has its glory, but when the full light of morning comes pouring through the window, you can't even tell that the lamp's on. The glory of the new covenant has eclipsed the glory of the old. How is that? Well, first, in the new covenant, we're actually granted life and progressive transformation. Under the weight of the law, we were spiritually dead, like unchanging, immovable stones once we had minds hardened against God but but now they're soft and they're pliable they're capable of change and God gets uh, God he gives promise of this through the prophet Ezekiel he says and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So this is not just behavioral modification. This is true heart change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul compares the ministry of death in verse seven to the ministry of the spirit in verse eight. You might be expecting him to say the ministry of life instead. But he's already said in verse seven that the spirit gives life life this is what the holy spirit does he he makes the dead come alive and he causes the living to grow and change and transform for the rest of their lives from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit so in the old covenant the glory faded but in the new it flourishes It, it intensifies and strengthens So this kind of indwelling work of the Spirit leading to spiritual life and inner transformation was not present under the old covenant. Therefore, the new has more glory. Second, under the old covenant, we were justly condemned in our sin and awaiting execution, locked away in our prison cells. But the ministry of righteousness stepped in. That's the comparison in verse nine, the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness. So the opposite of condemnation is acquittal. So when you read righteousness, think declaration of righteousness. The judge has cleared you of all charges and you are free to go because another man has stayed behind in your stead, a guiltless man, and he places himself under the condemnation of the law and its penalty to spare you this is the glory of the ministry of righteousness Paul writes in chapter 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in the new covenant condemned sinners that's you and me have been declared righteous and set free from the slavery of condemnation and death Again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see it in verse 17 where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The glory of this ministry far exceeds that of the old. Another aspect of our freedom in the new covenant is that the veil is removed. Verse 18 through Christ it is taken away. He frees us from our spiritual blindness. Now we can see. Now we can see the despicable nature of sin and the deceit of the devil and the folly of trying to establish our own righteousness before God. And now, now we can see Christ himself. If you go back to Exodus 34, you see that Moses, he only removes the veil when he goes into the tabernacle to meet with God. So as Paul interprets it, Moses is performing a sign act for believers. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's exactly what Moses is doing. So this is really a picture of conversion. Turning to the Lord is another way of saying repentance and and faith. Repent and believe. When you turn to the Lord, you, you turn from yourself and your boasting and your pride. You turn away from your sin. And what a relief to finally let it go and to turn and to lay hold of Christ and behold him. That's what, it, that's what it means to become a Christian. The blinders are finally off, and now you can behold something far more desirable, the glory of Christ himself. Isaiah 45, 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. In the King James, it says, Look unto me and be ye saved. Well, as I said, our our ministry in Croatia was a very challenging work, very rocky soil, spiritually speaking. In eight years of actively sharing the gospel among university students, I saw two young men come to faith in Christ. One was named Davor Duganich. Davor Duganich. I'd spent a lot of time with Davor, many conversations. Uh, He would attend our meetings. But the gospel message just seemed to bounce off him. It just couldn't get traction. And so there I was, yet again, sitting with Davor in a smoky cafe, looking over the Adriatic Sea, trying to help him understand this glorious news of Jesus Christ. And I had given him everything I had. I was spent, and truth be told, I was discouraged. I sat there with my head hanging. I was was speechless and I'm telling you, it was almost like a two-by-four hit him on the side of the head because suddenly he said, all I have to do is trust in Jesus. And then he said, I have friends that must hear this. And he's off to the dorms. And they thought he was a crazy man, you know. You know, this, this happened when the missionary across the table had nothing left to say. All his arguments have been spent. He's over there kind of moping. That's when God gave Davor spiritual sight. All of us with unveiled face need to behold the glory of Christ afresh, even this morning. Maybe for the first time. But we never stop turning to the Lord. As we behold him in his glory, we're progressively transformed into his image. We become what we behold. We become what we worship. So just like Moses' face shone after meeting with God, we are transformed in increasing degrees of glory as we behold him. Well, how do we do this? How do we behold the glory of the Lord and so be transformed? Well, first we should ponder the gospel of the Lord. We should take our cues from this text. So you should turn the new covenant around in your mind like holding a diamond in your hand and you're just looking at all every brilliant angle as you turn it. So when your boss gives you a scathing annual review though you've worked hard and whether it's a fair assessment or not you can say in your heart Jesus Christ is my righteousness. I have been made right with God and I'm going to be okay. I can weather this storm. So you let the comfort of that fill up your heart and put steel in your spine. So recalling and pondering what Christ has secured for you in the gospel is a wonderful antidote to the fear of man. And it is a balm for any anxiety. Second, so how do we behold the glory of the Lord? This is really profound. You're going to want to write it down. Read the Bible, okay? Regularly come to it as food, feed on it, meditate on it, swim in the Bible, how do you get to know someone well, will you spend time with them, if we want to know God, we've got to spend time in his word, someone said once we have spent time in the presence of the king, we will gradually become more like him, this is how it works, this is how we are transformed, If you need help getting started with this, grab a friend and say, hey, why don't we get together once a week, read a passage of scripture together, and talk about it. It's not rocket science, but this is how we behold the glory of God, and we need one another's help in this. So this flows right into our thought life and prayer. So thirdly, think on glory and talk to the God of glory. So you would never spend an afternoon sitting at the bottom of your septic tank. who would do that? Yet we allow our minds to sit in squalor and vanity and coveting and envy for long, lingering minutes, sometimes hours, even though in the end it leaves us empty and miserable. So Tom asked us on Easter Sunday, aren't you tired of thinking about yourself? That struck a chord with me. Imagine the relief to to finally have something more than myself to dwell on, something outside of me, not dependent on me, not centered on me, bigger than me. It would feel like clean mountain air after you've been breathing the smog of the city. You've probably heard that insightful line from C.S. Lewis. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yes, we are. But God in His mercy offers us Himself. Our lives and our thoughts can now be taken up with Him. So, what I'm talking about is a lifelong discipline, but it it starts to pick up speed if you if you give yourself to it. It Takes a little bit of work. So let me give you an example. Uh, You're driving and you decide that day to turn the radio off. Nothing wrong with listening to the radio, but that day you decide turn it off. You're at a red light and you look to your right, and there is a towering oak tree. And it is it's soaring into the sky. Its branches are wide, its girth, it's it's just a massive oak tree. Maybe you catch a bird or a squirrel up there and you think, Lord, you are like that tree. You are strong and undaunted by storms. You are a shelter for the weak. You are a provider and a protector. Would you make me like that? So you're just using your, your sanctified imagination that God has given you to think on glory and you're talking to God about it. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So what you're doing is you're stirring up your taste buds for God's glory. Well, you might say, well, first of all, Daniel, you sound like a strange nature mystic, okay? You're kind of weirding me out with all these examples. Uh, That's okay, just go home and read Psalm 29, okay? And then we can talk. (laughs) Second, you might say, look, I am just not the contemplative type. I'm, I'm too easily distracted. I'm not a morning person. I'm not bookish. I've always struggled with these spiritual disciplines you're talking about. What hope is there for me? Well, praise God for our varying personalities. Now, the church needs all of us. I'm not calling for absolute conformity. And how this should look, but I would push back a little. You say you're not contemplative, but you surely contemplate something, right? We, we think about what we love. So I'm asking you, for starters, to lay claim to some of your idle mental space on a typical day and give it to God. Maybe on your lunch break, instead of scrolling through Facebook, take a walk outside and talk with God. Unburden your heart before him and tell him why you love him. Try that this week. And after a while thinking about God and seeing every circumstance through the lens of God, it will start to be a spiritual reflex. Even while walking into Target. Ask God to show you his glory. A man once did that. You can read about it in Exodus 33 and 34. Ask God for more of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you ever done that? We see right there in verse 18 for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus himself, he encourages this. He says in Luke's gospel for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We have not because we ask not. So friends, there is always more of God to behold than you are currently aware of beholding the glory of God is what we were made for we are wired for this there is an ache in every human heart for this all of us you ever been at the beach and you've stood on your balcony looking out at a lightning storm out there at sea why is that so mesmerizing Or if you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't stand 100 feet back. You get right up to the edge. Why? Because you want to take in as much grandeur and beauty as you possibly can. We are made for this. And these are but echoes and shadows of the real thing. Or have you ever been haunted by a piece of music or a particular melody? It just grips you. Or a story you've read that that had such piercing beauty that you couldn't even fully explain it so you find there's this longing this aching inside the God who gives all good things has made you for himself he made you to behold the glory of his son and he has made us fit to be in his presence he has given us eyes to see him having removed the veil it's true for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face So friends, there is a coming glory that is gonna bind all of us up. Heal every wound, satisfy every longing and fill us with a joy we have never known. John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, he says this, these things we here admire but cannot comprehend. We know not well what we say when we speak of them. Yet there is in true believers a foresight and foretaste of this glorious condition. There enters sometimes by the word and spirit into their hearts such a sense of the uncreated glory of God shining forth in Christ as affects and satiates their souls with ineffable joy. That's inexpressible joy. We know that day is coming, but until then, let's behold as much as we possibly can of this glory, and so be transformed into his very likeness. Let's take a few minutes now, a few moments at least, to reflect on this, and then I will pray.